good evening, everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you for coming out on this uh, kind of cold night. So let me tell you about Jack, Noel, and this cynical, smart-ass kid named Ken. Jack is uh, Jack Monahan. It was the fall of 1966, my senior year in high school. My family had just moved from one apartment to another apartment about seven blocks away. But the bus I used to take to school, uh, I used to have to take a bus and then a subway to get to high school, uh, the bus stop was about three blocks from my old apartment in the other direction. And so now moving seven blocks the other way, it's a 10 block walk and there's actually a closer bus route that gets me to the subway that gets me to high school. So it's early fall in 1966, and I am uh, standing at the street corner. It is a miserable fall day in Brooklyn, a mistake, because almost always fall days in Brooklyn are beautiful beyond words. Uh, God must have thought it was Boston rather than Brooklyn. But uh, anyway, it's teeming rain, and like every self-respecting high school senior, of course, I wouldn't be caught dead with an umbrella. So I'm just standing out there in the rain at the street corner waiting for the bus to come with three or four other people, adults, all of whom have umbrellas. So I'm standing there and then uh, waiting at the corner and there's a stop, light, stop sign, or stop light rather, and uh, at that stop light there's an old car and the lights are flashing. And we're sort of looking at one another Anybody recognize the car? None of us know it. So uh, the light changes, and this car kind of rolls in right along the sidewalk where the bus stop is. And I see this figure leaning over the front seat and rolling down the window on the curbside. And then he says, Himes, you want a ride? So I said, yeah, sure, great. I get in the car, and it's Jack Monahan. Jack Monahan was my high school freshman English teacher. And I didn't think he liked me because uh, whatever the grade was, it wasn't what I thought I was going to get. And I figured the only reason for that is no, no fault of mine. It has to be that he doesn't like me, right? So uh, I figured Jack Monahan has it in for me. And then my sophomore year, I become convinced of this because I am now about 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and I know it's hard to believe now, but back then I weighed about 115 pounds. And I go out for JV football, right? And Jack Monahan is the coach of JV football. So come the last day of cuts, I get cut. Well, now I'm convinced, I mean, because after all, who wouldn't want a five foot nine, 120 pounder on their football team, right? So it's gotta be Jack Monahan has it in for me. That's all I know about Jack Monahan for my years at high school. And then finally in my senior year, this guy stops on this rainy morning, picks me up. So we're driving into school. And he says to me, I've never seen you before at this corner. And I said, well, that's because my family moved and now this is the bus I take to get to the subway. 
And he said, so you're going to be out here every morning? I said, yeah. So he said, I come by here every day. He said, I usually come by between 7.30, 7.45. If you're here at 7.30 and you want to ride, you got it. If I'm not here by 7.45, take the bus, don't wait for me, because it probably means I'm having car problems or I'm not feeling good. He said, if you're not here when I come by, I'm not going to wait for you. Deal? Deal. So from early fall till mid-June of my senior year, Jack Monahan picks me up, and I suspect between snow days and illness and everything else, maybe there's six days in the whole school year that we don't ride into school together. Now, as I said to you, I, I knew nothing about Jack Monahan other than he didn't like me, so I thought. Well, I learned as we're talking, Jack Monahan was a Norman Thomas socialist. Now there's about Fred and Sue, Tom Groom, there's about four people here who know what, who Norman Thomas was and Norman, Norman Thomas socialist. Norman Thomas was this guy, he was sort of the Bernie Sanders of the 1950s and 60s. He was uh, not a communist, in fact, virulently anti-communist, but he was a socialist in terms of his economic policies. He opposed the Vietnam War. Uh, he was very strong on racial harmony and integration, very strong on economic justice, very pro-labor, strong for labor unions and the like. And Jack Monahan is an old Norman Thomas socialist. So we'd be riding into school, and he'd ask me every day just about, so what'd you read in the papers? Well, about all I read in the papers was how the Yankees did or how the Knicks did. I didn't pay much attention to the front of the paper. But gradually, because he'd always ask me these questions, I started looking at the front of the paper. And uh, we'd talk about politics and economics. This is 66, remember? So this is Lyndon Johnson as the president. It's the beginning of the Great Society programs. Lyndon Johnson is putting Medicare into place, Medicaid. It's the start of lots of anti-poverty programs. And we're talking about this stuff. It's also a time just after the Civil Rights Act is passed. We're talking about integration, busing in schools, all these kinds of activities. And uh, Jack Monahan opens me up to another perspective on these things. Because my family was pretty conservative, my father was a union guy, but uh, you know, no big strong guy in union politics or anything. And Jack is asking me questions and we start talking about things, about racial justice and economic justice. And then as time goes on, I find out he's also a pacifist. He refused to fight in the Korean War. I didn't even know how to spell pacifist back in those days, right? But I'm talking to this guy, and it's one of the reasons why he's so strongly opposed to the Vietnam War, and he's telling me this is going to be a disaster for this country. We ought not get involved in this. And uh, I'm listening, and we're going back and forth and having these conversations. So this goes on for a whole year, right? And what Jack does for me, this guy who I thought didn't really like me, is he opens up a whole world to me that was new about political awareness, about that the suffering of 
people in the world, about racial tensions, about the struggles of working people just to try and make an honest living. And all of a sudden, this kind of, you know, cynical, smart-ass guy who's sort of alienated from his parents, doesn't really think much of his uncles and aunts. They're still making fun of the Beatles for having long hair. So I'm figuring, what the hell do they know about anything, right? So I'm sort of alienated and distant from my family. And here comes this adult who I hardly knew, who becomes this presence in my life, who really sort of shows me around the world in a way I hadn't seen the world before. Makes me think about what life in the world entails. Gets me thinking about how do you live a life that's a decent, responsible life. All stuff that, for me, was pretty heady at the time. So flip forward two more years. Now it's the fall of 1968. I'm a sophomore in college, living in the dorms. <clears throat> 68, and that academic year, is a tough year. Right? Remember, Martin Luther King is shot in April of 68. Bobby Kennedy is shot two months later in early June of 68. In the summer of 68, there are riots in about a dozen major cities in this country with the assassination of Martin Luther King. There's arson. National Guard troops called out to stop the violence. Right? There's all sorts of racial tension. Right? There's the Chicago Convention in July of 68, in which there's rioting in the streets when Various groups really go in to protest what's happening in the Democratic Convention, opposing the possibility of Hubert Humphrey getting the nomination for president. We've already driven Johnson out of the electoral race. He decides not to run because of the opposition he's running into with Vietnam. But Hubert Humphrey, a good and decent man, but he's viewed by my generation as kind of a lapdog for Lyndon Johnson. We far underestimated him at the time. But we had no use for, for Humphrey because we thought he's a stooge of Johnson. But Bobby's dead. So we got Eugene McCarthy. And we got some other people who want to take Johnson on and take on Humphrey. And young people are rushing to Chicago to sort of protest what's happening inside the convention arena. The mayor at the time, Richard Daly, calls out the cops in force. There's rioting in the streets. People are watching the Democratic Convention on TV, and they're seeing you know, kids getting their heads cracked open by, by police and National Guard. People are scandalized that this could happen in the United States, this kind of rioting at a major party's political convention. All this stuff is going on in 68. And by now, I'm sort of politically engaged. I'm involved in this stuff, and I've become absolutely cynical about normal politics. I'm absolutely cynical about making change through the system. The system is corrupt. Right? The slogan that a lot of us had back then was, don't trust anybody over 30. Right? Dylan used to sing about it. Right? 
And so here I am, this kind of cynical, smart-ass guy who really doesn't think much of anybody but people in my own generation. I'm convinced I know more than any adult in my family and probably know more than some of the professors who are teaching me. They don't get it. They don't know what's really going on. Right? And this guy, Noel Fitzpatrick, a young priest, moves into the dorm where I'm living. In fact, moves into the floor where I'm living and takes up residence there. Noel is this incredibly charismatic guy. He wasn't particularly good looking. Uh, he was smart enough, but he just had an energy about him. He just had a sort of aura around him. When Noel walked into a room, you would have noticed him right away. There was a vitality there you could not overlook or ignore. And Noel would sit up with us at night. We'd be sitting around in dorm rooms drinking beer. Back in those days in New York, you could drink at 18. So we're always pounding beer down, sitting in our rooms. We're talking with Noel Fitzpatrick. We're going through life. And finally, at a certain point, I'm one of the last guys to leave the room one night. And he says to me, Himes, I got a question for you. I said, yeah, father, what's up? He says, why are you such a sarcastic son of a bitch? <laughs> and I kind of look at him. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you're very funny, but all your humor is at other people's expense. All your humor is mocking. All your humor is putting other people down. You're better than that. Or at least, you should be better than that. Well, that sort of takes you back a little bit, right? So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I don't know. Maybe I should do something different. He gives me a little book, right? I actually brought it with me. I still got it from 1968. The price back then, 85 cents, all right? 85 cents, 150 pages. It's a book on St. Francis of Assisi, right? Noel was a Franciscan. He says to me, read this, it'll be good for you. So 150 pages, I figure, okay, I can read that, right? So I read this little book on St. Francis. And uh, it's not really a life of St. Francis, but it's a, uh, a book that's kind of like a reflection or a meditation on his life. What did it mean? What was this guy about, right? And Chesterton, who was this British writer, famous British Catholic writer in the mid middle of the 20th century, Chesterton has this one passage talking about Francis in this book. And he's talking about how Francis sees the world very differently. And what he talks about is the image he uses in the book is Francis used to go up into the mountains. He lived in the Umbrian Valley in central Italy. right? And, uh, Francis used to go up into the hills and the mountains of Umbria to be alone and pray. Right? And uh, Chesterton talks about how Francis is up there. And he's on one side of the Umbrian Valley. And he's looking back on the other side of it, also mountains. And on the top of one of those mountains is the city of Assisi, his hometown, the city that he loves so much. And if you've ever been to central Italy, you know 
that many of these cities, Perugia, Siena, all these sorts of places, they were walled cities because these cities are constantly at war with one another in the Middle Ages. And so most of these cities are enclosed walled cities. And because stone is cheap, it's all stone. There are these big, thick walls around the city of Assisi as it sits on the top of this hill. And all the homes, the churches, all the buildings in Assisi are thick, heavy slabs of stone. And Chesterton says, Francis looks out one day, looking out at that city, and he's praying for the people of his home, hometown. And he's looking at this city, this solid, massive, walled, thick, heavy city. And Francis, as he was wont to do, he was something of a street performer. Chesterton says, Francis may have done tumble salts. And all of a sudden, in one of his tumble salts, he sees the world upside down. And now this city that was so strong and massive and solid, now upside down, it's hanging over the abyss. And the very thing that made it seem solid and strong and invulnerable now makes it seem terribly precarious, its weight and its mass. And Francis looks at this, and he comes to the insight, right, that all of existence is like this. All the things that we think make us strong, make us solid, make us safe, that all of that seen the other way, makes us incredibly precarious and vulnerable. Chesterton says, what Francis comes to experience is, life is incredibly and radically contingent. And what he means by that is, it need not be. What Francis comes to realize is, not himself nor anyone in Assisi needs to exist. That every human being is radically unnecessary. You and I need not exist. There's nothing about us that makes us necessary. We are radically contingent. So what do you do once you come to that awareness? How do you think, once all of a sudden you realize, I am thoroughly and absolutely unnecessary? And there's nothing about me that I can make myself necessary. How does one deal with that sort of reality of contingency? And Chesterton says, basically, you got two choices. There's two options here. One option is to say, well, there it is. It's all random. It's all an accident. I need not be, but someone rolled the cosmic dice, and uh, it came up snake eyes. I exist, right? I am, but I don't have to be. It's just by chance. It just so happens that I exist, and this universe exists, but it could be something completely other. I need not be. That was one option open to Francis. 
if he doesn't take it. The other option, Chesterton says, is that Francis decides the only reason that I must exist is because somebody willed me into existence. The only reason I am is because somebody loved me into being. And what Francis comes to realize is, at the heart of it all is love. There is no other reason why any of us exist except for love. We have been loved into existence, not as a one-time event. What Francis realizes with that vision of the city, it's always hanging there precariously. It's always suspended over the abyss. You and I exist because God continues to love us into existence. What Francis realizes is we are not necessary, but that's not for him a cause for despair or cynicism. Rather, it's proof to him that there is a divine lover who holds it all in place, who makes it all happen. So that for the world to come to an end, for this cosmos to come crashing down into one big black hole, God doesn't have to do anything. God has to stop doing something. He has to stop loving this cosmos into being. I remember that passage as vividly now as when I read it back in my dorm room in 68. Because it kind of changed my whole world. It sort of made me think about, well, yeah, what the hell is the point of it all? What do I make of this? And here I was, really this kind of cynical, smart-ass guy who was really alienated from adults, alienated from my family, thinking to myself, what's the point of this? Right? And all of a sudden, the vision of Francis gives me another take on things. Noel Fitzpatrick introduces me to another way of thinking about the world. Now, the reason I bring these two things up is because in my own life, I can think not only about Noel and about Jack. I can think of three other specific individuals who at certain points in my life saved my ass, right? I was screwing up my life, right? Not trying to make myself out to be some you know, bank robber or murderer. You know, I wasn't a serial killer or anything, but I was going nowhere. You know? I was in, I had a crappy attitude, a crappy frame of mind. I had no particular ambitions. I was angry in a sort of undifferentiated way. I didn't know what the heck I thought anything was about. And at different points in my life, an adult came into it and sort of said, Himes. Think about this. Himes, let me show you something. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever thought about that? There was Jack and there was Noel. There was also Peter. There was Frank and there was Bobby. At different points in my life, a mentor stepped in. None of these people became friends. 
I've not seen Jack Monahan since I graduated from high school. About once every 10 years, I used to send them a letter, usually on Thanksgiving Day. Noel Fitzpatrick, he died when he was 39. The other guys I mentioned, they're all dead. A lot of people who taught me are dead at this point in my life, right? You get to a certain age, you do way more funerals than baptisms in your life, right? But the point is, people came into my life that didn't have to come into my life. These weren't relatives, these weren't people who owed me anything. But they took some time, they exerted some energy, they thought, this guy's worth talking to. Mentors are one of the great gifts of life. I hope you've had a few by now. But to allow people to come into your life, and they may not ever be your friends. They may pass through for a period of time. They're there for a certain moment when you need them. There's a chapter in your life when you need somebody to come, hey, come over here. Let's talk about this. Let's think a little harder than you're thinking about this. To have those kinds of people step into your life is an incredible rich grace. That people would come along into your life, tap you on the shoulder, and say, let me show you around a little bit. Let me maybe point out a few things you're overlooking, or some truth that maybe you're forgetting or some relationship that you need to straighten out. When I think about mentors, it leads me to thinking about gratitude. Gratitude has become, for me, the most underappreciated virtue in the Christian life. We talk about faith, right? Agape Lati talks about faith all the time. We talk about hope. We talk about love, right? We talk about justice a lot here at BC. We talk about kindness and honesty, hard work. These are all wonderful things. But I want to suggest to you that one of the really underappreciated virtues in life that we all ought to cultivate is gratitude. To wake up every morning and realize I need not be. There is nothing here that I can claim that I deserve. God has to do this for me. It doesn't work that way. It is all gift. Whether it's mentors, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's roommates, whether it's colleagues at work, whether it's neighbors you'll meet in life, it's all gift. None of us has a right to claim it. We don't even have a right to claim the 24 hours of the day. It's all loved into existence. We are, we are, I am, you are, because of gift, a gracious God. To wake up each morning and just for a moment to make that real in your mind. Just to wake up every day and say, thank you, God. Thank you for this day. I hope I do something with it that's worthwhile. I hope 
someone will touch my life or I'll touch theirs. And even if it's a day in which I screw up big time, the fact that at the end of the day, I can say, forgive me, God, that too is an incredible gift. That you have that kind of experience of God who is ever merciful and forgiving. That we don't have a God who holds grudges. We don't have a God who punishes. We have a God who loves us and sustains us in existence. To acknowledge that. To simply find some time every day to say thank you. So an appropriate way to end, I suspect, is to say thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.